This is Nancy Duarte, and you are listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author of Under New Management and a recovering academic. And this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkuscom slash 722 or text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit, a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox so you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkuscom slash 722 or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Today's episode features Nancy Duarte. I have been a longtime fan of Nancy Duarte's work. I use some of her work in uh, some of my college courses on uh, how to give better presentations, especially how leaders give uh, really good presentations. And I've used her work in shaping my own keynotes, both the keynote that I give on the myth of creativity and the talk that I give or adapt depending on the context uh, around under new management are both really based on uh, the work of several thought leaders. One prominent one has been Nancy Duarte. So I was really excited when actually this whole thing started with a tweet. She actually tweeted my TEDx talk from the first book, Why Great Ideas Get Rejected. And then that started a, a Twitter conversation that turned into a, yeah, let's do a podcast. So this was a delight for me to actually get to talk to Nancy because she's been such an impactful person in my life and in, in my presenting she also has a new book that came out in February, Illuminate, Ignite Change Through Speeches, Stories, Ceremonies, and Symbols. And I think this is a really, really cool book because this is where her work on how to design a great presentation, and she's designed some great presentations. She's worked for a long time with TED. She actually designed uh, a lot of the visuals on Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. She has changed the world through speeches and stories and ceremonies and symbols. And this was a really good example of crossing the, the bridge from just speaking tips to actual leadership advice based on how you can bring change to the world through your speeches. We also took parts of this conversation and we developed a really cool cheat sheet called Four Tools for World-Changing Speeches. It's based on kind of those four sections, speeches, stories, ceremonies, and symbols that leaders use. Uh, it's a really, really cool insight if you just have time to kind of check out the PDF. You can check that out. You can download it on the show notes page. Again, davidberkuscom slash 722 will get you there for that cheat sheet, four tools for world-changing speeches. But I really think stay tuned and listen to the whole thing and then go get that bonus because this is an awesome interview. It was a ton of fun for me. And I think even Nancy enjoyed it too. Um, so we had a ton of fun getting to know each other and getting to show an appreciation for Nancy's work. And Nancy had a ton of fun showing how you can change the world through the speeches that you give. So who are you and what do you do? Uh, I am Nancy Duarte, and I am CEO of a communications agency in the Silicon Valley that focuses on presentations. So we write and produce some of the most challenging and amazing ideas that need to be communicated clearly. Okay, I was going to say the first part of that was like understatement of the century. Right? We're a communications <laughs> firm in the Silicon Valley area, but then there's the oh yeah, we write and produce and script, etc. And I, and I think that's what you know. There was um. 
there was a time, like evolution of Nancy, right? There was a time where you were behind the scenes making all sorts of a ruckus in the world by helping other people make their ruckus. Yeah. Um, but really since, I mean, it's yeah, Slideology, Resonate, the new book, Illuminates. Um, it's it's actually five if you count the HBR book and yeah. Slide Docs, right? And Slide Docs, very good. So, hey, you, no, I like Slide Docs. You, you got my book count right. The only person. <laughs> I really I like slide docs. We could do I a whole podcast docs. on slide docs, but it's audio, so it wouldn't really <laughs> be all that helpful. That, that book is unbelievable. Probably my best selling free book I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also I think it's the only free book you've done. Exactly. But there's that. But like I mean, actually, let's just start talk about talk to us about sort of how it all started, how you got into this mess, and then what kind of was the pivot point between helping others one on one and wanting to take your own message and ideas out through book form and speeches, et cetera. Yeah, it's kind of funny. You know, we, we've been, I don't know, when your kids are small, you tend to kind of just hunker down, get your work done. You don't get to look up and look around. And I remember I hired my first president and I'm like, you know, I've heard this word blog before, but I don't know what one is. It's like 2006 or something. And I Google, I'm like, well, maybe I should blog because now I have all this time on my hands, right? I have this president running the shop and I Googled presentation blog and Gar Reynolds site came up and I sent him a one line note, like, where have you been all my life? It was the subject line. And he's like, oh my God, I just wrote this book now that I, I you should be the one that's writing a book I'm going to send you my book and you pick up everything I didn't address in the book like he and I became fast friends and then he was the one that kind of told the world that we did how course inconvenient truth we're just plowing you know we're just like oh yeah whatever we just didn't tell anyone and um <laughs> <laughs> so funny and so I felt like I just wanted to take all our learnings and give it away because presentations were that bad and so when I wrote the book, it didn't dawn on me that I would have to come, you know, I, I was kind of like the Wizard of Oz, the guy behind the curtain making other people look powerful. And I had to kind of come out from behind the curtain and realize I'm, if I'm the presentation lady, I'm going to have to be a really good presenter. <laughs> like it didn't dawn on me. Like literally, I just write this book and I start getting calls for training. So we started a whole training company. We started, like it was just unexpected beauty that came from that. And so we started with slides and and people got better at slide making. I mean, it, it, you can tell you, you don't sit through nearly as many terrible presentations as you used to. And, but they were still, content was still terrible. And so that's when I went on my journey through storytelling. And, and I, it was just, that it was one of my favorite journeys I've taken. And I mean, outside of my newest book, I do these long, deep kind of three, four year long studies. And, um, when we started to do story, storytelling, and my uh, TEDx talk is based on that, and it's had a, over a million views. I mean, when you add up TED and Vimeo and YouTube, I think it's up to 1.7 views or something. We went through so much growth. I call it a catastrophic growth almost. It was just rip-snorting, unbridled growth. And it was hard. I mean, believe it or not, that was really, really a, a hard season. Um, fascinating, but tough. And I had to wind up changing as a leader because of the kind of change my organization was having to go through rapidly. And so my organization was going through the deepest just most systemic changes it had ever gone through while I was writing Illuminate. It was just so meta. Sometimes I would be like doing kind of this research, contemplating and be like, oh my God, here's this massive leadership insight. And then I'd be like, 
oh my God, I need that insight. <laughs> it's just bizarre. Like to be driving change, writing a book about leaders who communicate well in a season of change. It was almost like I was doing my own therapy um, and really trying to, to, nail, um, to nail this thing. So we have 120 people plus contractors that literally are the most beautiful, creative, smart, strategic people I've ever met. I mean, ever met. And it's fun. I have an exec team now that's just so bright. I, I just, I have to be on my toes. I actually let them run the strategy sessions because I, I, I'm just like gawking at how brilliant they are. <laughs> you know, that adage that says hire people smarter than yourself. I pretty much did that. And um, it's true. I'm growing as a person and a leader for having surrounded myself with smart people. Okay. So I have, I have a couple different questions in, in sure. there. Um, but I, it's funny that you mentioned that the, um, the TEDx talk or TED talk, or when, when does a talk go from being a TEDx talk to a TEDx? Cause yours was TEDx and then it ended up on the site. So I never know yeah, if I'm being proper know. by saying, still saying TEDx <laughs> or TED, or I have no so, idea. So, um, TEDx East had asked me to do a talk there in New York and the, um, and I thought, you know, if I really kill it and I never asked Ted to put it up there, but I thought if I kill this talk, I treated it as if it was the TED stage because I thought if I really do a good job on this, maybe, maybe it'll make it on TED.com. And I think about 1% or 2% or some really small number of TEDx talks make it onto TED.com. So I just wanted yeah, to Yeah, no, I'm it. still waiting for them to call for my two TEDx talks. <laughs> So what happened was it was a year later, and I just didn't look at it, right, because it never made it to TED.com. It had like, I don't know, 50 or 75,000 views or something. So that was kind of high. So I just kind of tweeted. I'm like, oh, so please, my TEDx talks had 50,000 views. And boom, they were like, I, I heard from Ted. And I'm like, hey, we're going to put your talk on TED.com on Tuesday. And I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> I was running around like a chicken around here, man. I was just like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And, um, yeah, so, it I mean, it was like a year later, but it had gotten enough. And that was before um, TED Talks were, uh, like, they're even more popular now, obviously, than 2011. But, um, yeah, so that was the well, little story there. And here's here's what I loved about that that talk. Because I know that talk was sort of about resonate. It was about that that shape of a good story, a good presentation. But there's a there's – a, I actually, when I think about that talk – I remember um, baking spices more than anything else. That <laughs> that image of like the you've got your little can of baking spices. You've got a thing that you think is actually this huge revolutionary thing. And the reason that I remember that is that when Illuminate first came up on my uh, oh. on my radar, it was sort of like, well, yeah, if you do the baking spices, and you're gonna have to, we'll link to it in the show notes, et cetera, because you're gonna have to watch the talk to get what we're talking about with baking. But it is, it's that idea that you've got this little idea and you're sort of protected over it, and it's it's your thing, and but you want to get it out there. And if you do, then you end up needing sort of the next lesson of Illuminate, which is how do you drive mm -hmm. that um, revolution? How do you drive that movement that you that was just this one thing inside of you, yeah. et cetera? Now, that's me writing sort of your history of revelation. <laughs> so I don't want to uh -huh. I don't want to assume that. But am I am I on point there or not? Yeah, it is interesting because what happens is when you have a dream, this thing inside of you that you're like, oh, my God, I have to make this become reality. Um, we called the leader a torchbearer on purpose. Number one, leading is a choice. Like a lot of people opt out. It's something like Frodo. He's like, oh, my God, I have this ring. <laughs> I'm the bearer of a ring. And he could have just tossed it over shoulder, but he chose to to bear this ring. And, and that's what leaders do. So it's like, well, we like the idea of a torchbearer. And a torch casts just enough light to dissipate the immediate fear, you know, whereas a lot of the dreams we have are long term. So you need your travelers to come with it. So it's the torchbearers and the travelers. And because nobody really makes an idea reality all on their own. There are a lot of people that have to come along with you. And the problem is with people is they're hesitant, they're resistant. 
and they're not excited. You need to motivate them, but you need to warn them. It's like, you know, herding sheep. And so a lot of the success of the most prominent and amazing leaders that have driven larger scale transformations relied heavily on speeches, stories, ceremonies, and symbols. And uh, just the power of the scale of the change they could do based on how they communicated is just fascinating to me. So it, it falls a story structure, which was also really cool. These big scale transformations, whether it's a movement like the civil rights movement or, you know, getting people to sign up for your charity to turning around Starbucks to migrating millions of people from macOS 9 to macOS 10. Those are big transformations. And it's a really magical thing when, when the leader uses speeches, stories, ceremonies, and symbols. Wow. Yeah. So, so is it is it just that we've spent so long? Like, because what I always get a, a hesitancy to see is people say like, oh, you know, you should you should be a storyteller. You should tell stories because we've we've always told stories. But like, we've also always done a lot of stuff that is bad for us, right? So, <laughs> what is it about these four things that is? I mean, I know we've done it for for thousands of years, but there's probably a good reason why we've also done it for thousands of years. Not just the fact that we've done it for that long. Why do these things right. always sort of be the ones that come up. Well, it's kind of cool because uh, story is an interesting structure because what it does is it observes transformation. There's this person, they go through this really tough time, and because of that tough time, they merge on the other side changed, right? So, there, we are fascinated with transformation. If you think about it, we're hardwired into a system in nature where it's like there's four seasons. There's life, birth, birth, life, death. There's, there's cycles, right? And, and we like to process other people cycling through life. And so, what's interesting is if you have storytelling, which has this inherent structure in how a story is structured in a way that you could repeat the last story that you heard, but you probably can't repeat the last speech. There's something really wrong about how is it that it's so easy for us to repeat repeat a story. And I think it's because it's based in transformation. And that's kind of where my studies went. I was like, well, if that's a great story, it's about transformation. A speech should be should lead the listenership also through some sort of a transformation. You have to define how you want your audience transformed. And then how does a great speech use the concept of tension and re- tension and release that's inherently built into um, storytelling. So there's like a cathartic release when you hear a story. And how do you hardwire cathartic releases into a speech? And so that's stories and speeches. They both have a three-act structure. And we took as much uh, observation from story as we could to apply to speeches. But what's interesting is with this new language around ceremonies and ceremony, a ceremony is also a three-act structure based in storytelling. So if you think about the rites of passage, if you go back and look um, anthropologically at the oldest artifacts that they found in civilization, they were actually used in a ritual. So for some reason, even the earliest humans really wanted to experience communal catharsis. And so the rites of passage is fascinating because it's a three-act structure. There's this single woman who goes through a ceremony and emerges married. You know, there's this student who goes to a graduation and emerges a graduate, you know, the bar mitzvah, there's a young boy who goes through a ceremony and is a man now. Now, well, it's 10 minutes later, nothing happened. He was just a boy. Now he's a man. Well, what happened was a ceremony and ceremonies are a moment of demarcation that says what used to be is no more. I have become something new. And organizations need to look at that and say, you know what, organizationally, this thing has ended. I know you're all emotionally attached to it, but it's over. And this new thing has begun. And we just need to be more cognizant to use that as a communication device. And all three of those are based basically in a structure of transformation and of um, of whatever I was going to say. 
it was really transformation and something and else hugely yeah. important <laughs> transformation and the structure of story so um sorry i'm like what it's friday today <laughs> but um yeah so i think the 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 tools are are important and when you put it together in a toolkit you can use them day to day, but then there's these other moments where it's like this moment on our journey needs to have so much symbolic meaning that it needs to be a galvanizing moment. And the leader also needs to recognize that, like what I need to gather everyone all together and we need a moment. And those moments when you use speech to story ceremonies and symbols together, it just creates something people will never forget. And a moment that they shared with people that they you know, travel through time with, and and those moments are really really um, important to identify and facilitate. Yeah, I agree. I I want to go back to one thing that you you mentioned from a leadership standpoint because this is one thing that I really enjoyed. So this is where my kind of business professory uh, management leadership mind melt merged with the speeches, stories, symbols, etc. Was that idea that and you talk about this right in the very beginning of the book that there is a there is a story, and in a lot of companies we see, you have the idea, it gains momentum, it levels off, then it declines, and then it dies. And that's really kind of the key is knowing when are you at the top of the – that you described as an S-curve, <laughs> right? And uh-huh. and when is it time to jump on another S-curve, right, or to guide people through that other – so I guess, I mean, a two-part question, how do, you, how do you know when it's time to do that? And then as a leader, how do you actually make that, hey, guys, this story is ending, it's time to get on this story type transformation? Yeah, it is interesting because the the middle part of the story in myths and movies is always the hardest part. This is where the protagonist, oh my God, he was wounded by an alien and just about died. So he's got a mortal wound and he still has to do a high-speed car chase, kill a couple people, and then climb up the side of a building to kiss the girl, right? It's just really intense. And as leaders, we need to realize that when we're asking people to transform, lead an initiative, migrate to a new software platform – Gonna, there's a struggle. There's, and so it's really a model in empathy to understand the struggle that your travelers are going to go through. Just because you declare this dream doesn't mean it just gets done. It's a struggle. And I think seeing and recognizing the struggle, seeing what they need at that stage of their struggle and communicating can become like a balm. It can become like a rally cry. It can be a war cry. We looked at everything. I mean, we looked at all kinds of different kinds of ceremonies and stories and speeches at the different moments in time. So the leader to what happens happens a lot of time is in uh, systemic cultural norms, you know, whether it's the civil rights movement or trying to move from Mac OS 9 to Mac OS to whatever it is, there are systemic norms. And the leader needs to be a student and a listener of their own culture. And they need to know, hmm, what do I want to amplify? And what do I want to to end? What do I what do I need to dismantle? And and you can't just walk into a new culture and be like, okay, I'm slicing this off at the knees. We're gonna this is gonna end because some of those things might be sacred in the culture. Like if there's an M and A, you don't just tear one logo off the building, th- throw it in a dumpster, and what let the employees watch you grind it up while a new one puts up. Right? You, you, there's just some things that are you just don't. You can't do that because that's like a, a di- like you can't burn the flag. <laughs> you know, you just don't do those things. So you have to really understand the what's emotionally charged in your culture, and and what's the sacred and right way to end things and begin things anew. So it's a real listening exercise to know um, when something should end and when it needs to begin anew. 
Well, and I, and I love that idea that there is there is a symbol or there's a moment or there's something that we need to, to do to sort of demarcate that period because so often it is, it's just a switch. It's just, yeah, it's starting today. You, you, we're all migrating you to this email address and this is the, we'll get you some new business cards and then it's over, right? Right. And then it, I, I, I think you're right. I think it's bigger than that. You know, I, yeah, I, totally. So um, a totally unrelated question. I was, that's, that was what my pause was. I was trying to think of a, a bridge, but I don't have a good one. So here's my bridge. On a totally unrelated note, I asked myself like the other question, and this is 100% for my own sort of personal gain than anything else. Um, But one of the things, most of the people that we um, we interview on the show, we talk about leadership and management, innovation, strategy, all of those sort of things. And I think it's interesting because most often we interview people that have this sort of thought leadery business model. What I love, and we hinted at this earlier with you realized – as you were writing Illuminate that you needed Illuminate, you're, you're running this organization while you're also talking about how to lead organizations, et right. cetera. <laughs> and you already kind of hinted at needing that with Illuminate as the sort of therapy. But my question is really sort of how do you manage the two like brands, the two companies? I mean, there is yeah. sort of, there's Duarte Inc., but then there's also like Nancy Inc., who is her own kind of thing. How do you well, that's funny balance that all you of see that? that. You're, I can't believe you could see that. Like, I belong to this kind of like a lot of the business authors in the Bay Area will get together, and there's only a couple of us that have an actual big practice. You know, they're like, what? How do you run a business? What? You write books and have a business? You know, so for some people, it's like, what? They can't even kind of comprehend it, but the books are actually birthed out of our experience with the business. So it is interesting. So for a long time, I've I've had a president. So I had one president for six years and one for four. And I was in the process of writing this book that I had these very poignant moments. Like my co-author and I, we would rent a room, uh, a working space over a a hotel just off the freeway. And sometimes I would just cry. It was so poignant. I'd be like, oh my God, I so needed this insight and revelation from my own book today. (laughs) But one of the things, conclusions I came to, was a little bit like how Howard Schultz needed to go from chairman and step back in as CEO. I had to go from CEO and I stepped back into my own organization as the president because my own organization needed a re-imprint of my heart. Like we'd gone through a season where it was like process, MIS stuff, optimization, let's get this stuff done quicker, faster, better, you know, because it was like getting more and more expensive to do business in the Bay Area, conflicted with like we needed to squeeze more out of stuff. And it was like, what? So all I do is I re-engage, I re-imprint my heart, and we're profitable again. I mean, it is interesting how the human psyche works that way. And so for me, I had so many little revelations. So I am now re-engaged in a, in a stronger operational role, which isn't standard for me. But I feel like when I'm older, I'm going to look back at this season of stepping back in, and it's going to be some of my finest moments. So normally what I do is from 6 a.m. to about noon, I'll write or think or read, research, whatever. And then from noon to about 6.30, I get my job done, go home, eat, because I'm empty nester now. My kids have been out for a while out of the house. And then I, you know, listen to some te- some mindless TV show. So it makes me feel like I'm not working while I get through hundreds of emails every evening. So it's like, it's a long day. Um, but I do have Nancy, the ambassador of Duarte. And now Nancy has stepped back in as operational leader again. And I'm loving it. I'm loving it. So now what we're going to try to do is do our 
Duarte is going to be a place where your dreams can be filled if you have a concept and some thought leadership. So two people, well, three total, two are co-authoring a book and another's writing her own book. And so we carve out enough time for them to do the same thing I did, carve out enough time for them to get some real work done and carve out some time for them to work on a nice, beautiful body of work in our space. So it's I'm trying to not have to be Duarte's only ambassador because um, that is hard, but I love it. Like, I have no complaints right now. I love my life. You know, I really do love my life right now. So, well, and I don't I think know it, if that really answered no, your question. It, it but. does, and I think it's interesting because we were talking about the S-curve and making the shift, and that's the same deal. Like, you got to a pinnacle yep. of Nancy Inc. and Duarte and then realized, no, we've got to, I've got to step back into this because it's time for the yeah. transformation and the next – S-curve. And it's interesting to see. I mean, I had no idea that you're now try, sort of building thought leadership among some of the other people in the company. That is that is the sort of next path, next story, or, or next chapter of story, et cetera. So that's really, exactly. really interesting. I think I'm doing, like, we're trying to do some really clever things and think about things in a way nobody's ever thought of. You know, that's what you have to do to stay, you know, at the edge of your market. And so, yeah, it's kind of fun. I'm having the time of my life, which is shocking to me because I always wanted to hand this responsibility to someone else. So it's been fun. Yeah. So so I already messed up a bridge once. Normally, this is where we would bridge from the book. And I would say things like the new book again, illuminate, ignite, change through speeches, <laughs> stories, ceremonies, and symbols. And then would I say, Nancy, I want to ask you questions. But since we're already talking about you, it's an easier transition to make. So we have five <laughs> questions that we ask uh, all of our guests. They all sort of provide um, really interesting insight, especially for those that are awesome enough to listen to every episode because then they get to compare. But if it's all right, let's. Are you ready to hit our five questions? Sure, sure. So mm-hmm. five five questions for Nancy Duarte. First, what's the best advice you've ever received? I think I my husband is the best example of someone who just doesn't let things bother him. And I think I learned that when you forgive someone else, you're actually setting yourself free. Hmm, that's good. I, I what's an average day look like for you? Up at quarter to six, usually exercising for 30 minutes in the office by seven, leave the office by six. And then I usually eat, uh, we cook a lot, so we usually eat. And then I'm, (laughs) sounds so boring, back on email from eight to about 10. That's like the average day, but I do have to travel a lot. So, but I would say that's kind of the average day, get a couple couple hours off in the evening and then I have my weekends off. So my day, interestingly, my assistant blocks my day and she protects blocks of time. So every Wednesday for two hours, I see my grandson on the middle of the day and I get a massage and my, my workouts are blocked out. My weekends are sacred. I don't, I don't do work on the weekends at all. I hike, I do this. So lots crammed in the week. And then I, every weekend's like a little mini vacation for me. That's awesome. Yeah. What are you reading right now? Oh, I just read a book by, I just finished it actually, um, called Good Charts by a senior editor at Harvard Business Review. And if I had, I should have written this book. So I'm so delighted to see it and angry at the same time that I didn't write it. <laughs> really bright thinking, some of the brightest thinking I've seen about chart making. So if you, I, I could have double clicked on the data section of Slideology, I would have written this book, but I didn't. So I do love it. It's by Scott um, Baranato. And it's called Good Charts. I really love it. Awesome. Yeah, I just that just came up on my radar uh, uh-huh. maybe two weeks ago or so. And because I think just like in you know in the in the mid '90s when everybody had terrible slides, now everybody's got you know decent visuals, but still awful at visualizing data. So, with that one guy with the really long pole who speaks at TED all the time, uh, Hans Rosling accepted. <laughs> I think everybody else is pretty terrible at, at visualizing data. Exactly. Exactly. The really long pole. That's so funny. <laughs> it took me a while to remember his name, but I'll never forget that pole. <laughs> 
And of course, we'll link up to that talk in the show notes as well. So if you're listening and you have no idea what we're talking about, that's what we're talking about. For, fourth question, what do you believe that most people don't? I do not believe that businesses are bad. Hmm. I, don't th- I don't think they're bad. I don't think they're evil. I think there's a couple. But I think if we try to destroy them, we are destroying our economy. So I, you know, <laughs> I just don't think they're bad. I know I'm not bad. It doesn't mean, you know, and companies my size are the largest employers, largest employers bar none. Whatever you penalize the big businesses on, I'm going to pay a penalty for. And um, keeps me up at night because I don't, I don't think they're all bad. And this rage against businesses is going to destroy us, I think. Oh, yeah. So. No, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I actually Shoot, I thought I thought of something other people didn't believe. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm a little weird, um, <laughs> if that's fair. No, we're, I mean, we're definitely in this trend of that. And the thing that I try and remind people is like businesses are made of people. And so people are good or bad. Like there are some bad people. People are good and bad. But the majority of people are relatively decent, right? And so if a, if a business is just a bunch of people, yeah. I don't get it. Like it yeah. does not compute. They don't get that if you tax me as a S corporation the way that is proposed by some politicians, I have to hire five less people because there's a direct correlation and people don't know, they don't understand that we're eliminating jobs. The bulk of it. Now, there's some very, very rich people, but that that's not the bulk of the people that are trying to employ people and just lead a good life. So it's going to get interesting. The title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? I I have to go with my own material here. <laughs> I think the ones that communicate well. I mean, I was even, I don't know why, I went on a rabbit trail through the internet. Even, even Margaret Thatcher would claim that she rose to the top based on why and how she communicated. So I think communicators, clear communicators rise to the top as leaders. So I would say communication. Yeah, that's good. And if you want to figure out how to be better in all of those things, Nancy's got five books for you or three and two halves books, however you want to count it. <laughs> um, the newest one is, is uh, Illuminate, which really I believe is. It's, it's far more than about presentations. It's how to, how to lead through uh, speeches, through stories, through all of those sort of things. And it's, so it's a phenomenal read. So I encourage you to check that out. In the meantime, Nancy, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Yeah, thanks for having me.